Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 99, and I'm finally wrapping up this mini-series on the relationships of the Tudors with the Muslim Ottoman Turks. In this episode, I look at the on-the-ground training and personal partnerships involved, as well as the portrayal of the Turk in popular culture. But first, I need to thank my patrons who help keep this show independent. I have amazing patrons. Thank you to Heather, Elizabeth, Kathy, Cynthia, Jurgen, also Sarah, Megan, Melissa, Lady Anne, Jessica, Diane, Olivia, Al, Ashley, Kendra, Cynthia, Judith, Katie, Mara, Emily, Selene, Laura, Ian, Barbara, Shar, Kiva, Amy, Allison, Joanne, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Susan, Andrea, Catherine, Rebecca from Tudor's Dynasty, Shandor, Philip, and John. Thank you so much, you guys. If you want to be part of this group of very intelligent people who have exceptional taste, please go to patreon.com slash englandcast to sign up for as little as a dollar an episode. One more thing, if you like treats, and who doesn't really, I invite you to check out the Treasures from Best subscription box that I've recently launched. It's a monthly box that you get delivered to your home or office, and it's filled with Tudor-themed treats like books, jewelry, special spa kind of items, all inspired by Tudor history. It's $39.99 a month, including shipping in the continental U.S., Check out treasuresfrombest.com for more information, to see a sample box, and to learn more. Hooray! So, in November 1600, an ambassador arrived in England with a retinue of foreigners. He wasn't the kind of ambassador we normally think of, like in the Holbein portrait of the ambassadors that is so famous. No, this was a foreigner from Morocco, and he and his group of servants and diplomats were given a house courtesy of the Barbary Company of Traders on the Strand. He was in London to conclude a peace treaty with England that would bring together the English Protestants and Muslims in Morocco against Catholic Spain. His name was Abd al-Wahid bin Masud bin Muhammad al-Anur, and we know what he looked like because he sat for a portrait, the first ever portrait from life of a Muslim in England. His visit was the culmination of over 50 years of negotiations, trade, and overtures between the Tudors and the Muslim world. Elizabeth imported her treasured sugar from Morocco since the beginning of her reign. 
Turkey carpets were becoming all the rage, and Bess of Hardwick commissioned wall hangings in the Turkish style for her homes at Chatsworth House and Hardwick Hall. Elizabeth herself had several meetings with Eleanor on subjects ranging from trade to the military plans in the Netherlands. The most important proposal by far was one that Morocco had actually brought to the table, a formal military alliance that would bring together the English and Moroccan navies to attack Spain. The memo states that it would, quote, be an act of compassion and humanity for the benefit of all mankind if Her Serene Majesty should embrace the perpetual friendship between her and the Serene Emperor, his master, and join forces against the King of Spain, their common foe and enemy. This was part of the larger Moroccan goal of recapturing Al-Andalus, which is actually where I live, Andalusia, which was the part of southern Spain that had been under Arab Moorish rule for 700 years and had only been reconquered 100 years before. Al-Anur suggested that the two combine forces on the ocean as well and take the Spanish colonies from Spain in the New World. He said that Morocco was especially ready to fight in Central and South America because their soldiers were already used to the heat. The two may have held these far-fetched dreams of completely getting rid of Catholic Spain. So let's go back a bit. In an episode several years ago, I talked about the Muscovy Company and the Northeast Passage. That was actually first set in motion during the reign of Edward VI, when a group of explorers led by Hugh Willoughby and Richard Chancellor decided to try to sail northeast around Russia to get to the Indies. They didn't make it to the Indies, but they did discover a trade route to Russia, and so was born the Muscovy Company. In 1555, under Mary and Philip, the Muscovy Company got their royal charter. They wouldn't threaten Philip's trade routes to the Indies, and so he was happy to go along with the plan, and that would be to give a monopoly to sailors sailing north and northeast and northwest to go in and out of Russia. This was all well and good, but two years later, in 1557, Mary and Philip wrote to Tsar Ivan in Russia, aka Ivan the Terrible, and requested safe passage for the representative of the Muscovy Company to go through Russia into Persia. This was the first overture of relations between then Catholic England and Islam. This was when the first trading agreements with the Ottomans came about, thanks to the precocious adventures of a young Anthony Jenkinson. At the time, he was on business for the Muscovy Company in Bukhara, modern-day Uzbekistan, a guest of the Islamic ruler Abdullah Khan II. Jenkinson had been a merchant in the Low Countries. He specialized in textile fabrics. He traveled through Flanders, Germany, Portugal, Spain, and then across North Africa to the Holy Land. When he was 24, he made it to Aleppo in Syria, one of the oldest cities in the world. It was a major route on the Silk Road. He was there to examine the silk and see how he could trade English wool for it. The city had 56 silk markets, and it was there when Sultan Suleiman visited Aleppo. We talked about Suleiman in the Siege of Rhodes episode. He's known as Suleiman the Magnificent for a reason. Jenkinson wrote home of this army of 80,000 men all converging on Aleppo. Being a textile expert, he made special notes of their clothing. He mentioned the dazzling turban worn by Suleiman. It was, quote, a goodly white turban containing in length by estimation 15 yards, which was of silk and linen woven together, resembling something of a Calicut Indian cloth, but is much more fine and rich. And in the top of his crown, a little plume of white ostrich feathers, unquote. 
This was during a period of warfare between the Sunni and Shia Muslims, not that different to what we still see today. Jenkinson didn't likely pay much attention to the nuances of the Muslim faith, but he did actually manage to get an audience with Suleiman himself. Even more remarkable, he came away from that meeting with formal trading privileges, normally the kind of agreement only granted to a head of state, and it was signed by Suleiman. He had somehow managed to pull this off with no diplomatic experience, and there was no history of any kind of relations between the English and the Ottoman Empire. He negotiated rights to, quote, laid and unlaid his merchandise, wheresoever it shall seem good unto him, unquote, anywhere in the Ottoman Empire without any other custom or toll. France and Venice, who also had trading relations with the Turks, were expressly instructed to not get in the middle of the deal. In late December 1558, Jenkinson was on another trip through Russia to Persia. He was a big adventurer. He's actually a really interesting character, and I'm going to write about him on my blog. He met with the Tsar. He obtained safe passage to go towards Persia, traveling to the Caspian Sea. He had heard great things about this area for trade, but he was disappointed to find that less than 60 miles from the Caspian, he found a market where, quote, there is a certain trade of merchandise there used, but as yet so small and beggarly that it is not worth making the mention, unquote. Then he became the first Englishman to see the Caspian Sea. He traveled in a caravan of camels with his English woolen cloth that he hoped to trade for silks. I don't think the silks would have been that necessary in places like Iran, but he was trying. At this point, he began to see the complex relationships within the Muslim world, and he commented on how the Sunni ordered the men to trim their mustaches while the Shia men kept theirs long. That is actually the first surviving English eyewitness account of any kind of the differences between the two main branches of Islam. Jenkinson was disappointed in the trading opportunities. He thought he might push on to China, but he realized how dangerous it would be for him traveling alone, and he left going back the way he came through Moscow. The accounts of his travels were later published by Richard Hakolite, the first English travel writer. He notes as an aside a thank you that he wrote to another Muscovy Company agent, Henry Lane. He thanked Lane for the wench, Ara Sultana, that had been a gift. Later, Jenkinson would give the girl to Queen Elizabeth. This casual addition demonstrates the harsh reality of the trafficking of men and women that was part of any trading missions during this time. We talked in the previous episodes of how the Muslims and Christians would raid each other's ports along the sea and capture slaves to row in the galleys or to be sold in the slave markets that dotted around the Mediterranean. This is one small example of an English trader partaking in the slave trade without even giving it a second thought. Ara Sultana, the poor girl that she was, would be the first recorded Muslim woman to enter into Tudor England. So we have these adventures like Jenkinson setting the stage. In 1559, Elizabeth's first parliament created a series of economic reforms that were designed to brace the country for the isolation. They already expected that they were going to be economically isolated with the succession of a Protestant woman that so much of Christendom deemed a bastard. Right? There were a lot of different ideas included, but importantly, there were ideas to encourage new navigations into the Muslim world. Within a decade, England would be importing 250 tons of Moroccan sugar every year, with imports overall from Morocco being 25% higher than that of Portugal. Trade with Morocco became very profitable, and dozens of London merchants participated, some by themselves and many as groups that they formed to work together. 
Now, in 1570, of course, Elizabeth was excommunicated by Pope Pius V with the papal bull saying that, quote, Elizabeth, the pretended queen of England, had seized on the kingdom and monstrously usurped the place of supreme head of the church in all England, unquote. She had left the said kingdom in a miserable and ruinous condition, which was so lately reclaimed the Catholic faith under Mary and Philip. Elizabeth was officially cut off from the body of Christ. Catholicism suddenly became even more suspect throughout England. The Bishop of Winchester wrote in 1566 that the Pope is a more perilous enemy unto Christ than the Turk, and Popery more idolatrous than Turkery. This would actually be a point where the Elizabethans and Ottomans could agree. They would often mention the shared dislike of idolatry, and they actually found a lot in common between Protestantism and Muslim and the Muslim faith. They both disliked popery, especially. That's what they called it, all this idolatry, this popery. The papal bull encouraged Elizabeth to seek trading partners elsewhere outside of Christendom. She largely stayed out of the Holy League with the Battle of Lepanto, and by March of 1577, the Ottoman Abd al-Malik captured the Moroccan city of Fez and proclaimed himself the Sultan of Morocco. He wanted to do a deal with Elizabeth, being desirous of the honor I hear of your Queen of England and the good liking I have of the English nation." Unquote. He was going to offer access to the markets beyond Morocco. And this particular trading relationship angered the Catholics like none before it as it dealt with the trade of arms and weapons. English tin went to the Muslim world. That tin would be used as cannonball or in weapons against Catholic Spain. So let's talk about how all of this played out in England. Between 1576 and 1603, more than 60 plays featuring Muslims disguised as Turks, Moors, or Persians played on the stages of London. We see Shakespeare showing a Moor vying for Portia's love in The Merchant of Venice. And yet he says, Mislike me not for my complexion, the shadowed livery of the burnished sun, to whom I am a neighbor and near bred. Bring me the fairest creature northward born, where Phoebus's fire scarce thaws the icicles, and let us make incision for your love to prove whose blood is the reddest, his or mine. The registers of the Company of Stationers of London show that nearly 60 books were published during Elizabeth's reign on subjects that were related to the Ottomans, and over half of those were published in the 1590s. There are inventories of art collections of the Lord Mayor of London and the Oxford scholar Thomas Key both list pictures of the great Turk. And poet Sir Philip Sidney wrote in 1575 that he was happy to receive a portrait of Murad, the new emperor of the Turks, from a friend in Strasbourg. He would later write about the Turks in a love sonnet sequence from the 1580s, saying, whether the Turkish new moon minded be to fill his horses this year on Christian coast, obviously alluding to the Islamic crescent moon. We can look at Shakespeare for other portrayals of Moors and Islam in popular culture. There are the aforementioned Merchant of Venice, but there are two other plays centered around the Moors. Othello is the most famous and nuanced. It actually leads us to show sympathy for the general who's praised throughout the play. And it's actually the villain of the play, Iago, who refers to him as a Moor in a really insulting way. And Iago is the one who refers to Othello's sexual relationship with Desdemona as an old black ram tupping a white ewe. And the word tupping is 
what they would say when animals were copulating. So that's Iago saying that. And Iago is the villain of the play, right? The other play that shows more is with Titus Andronicus. And that's the most violent of Shakespeare's plays. When it was redone recently, apparently five people in the audience fainted. <laughs> It even shows cannibalism. We even still see a bit of sympathy, though, for the violent Moor. A recent article in The Economist points to how quote, he is alarmingly eloquent and elicits sympathy when he rebuffs the accusations about his beliefs. Shakespeare even goes so far as to suggest that it is society's racism that drives characters to evil. So in many ways, both the Moor and the Catholics were evil. And then, as now, it was a complicated relationship with prejudices and stereotypes leading the way. But it's been my hope in doing this series on the relationship with the Turks that you can see that the Muslim relationship with England has been a complex one that dates back centuries, with both sides wondering about and questioning each other, but also finding each other exotic and interesting in their own ways. England was this periphery island that people in the Mediterranean, the Turks had never even heard of. And here comes this female ruler talking about trading this English wool and, and tin, right? And of course, it was very exotic for the English too. Let's remember that in Hardwick Hall, Bess of Hardwick had over 40 turkey carpets, so while Shakespeare showed Moors killing children, the merchants did deals for luxury products, which really isn't so different than what often happens now. So I'm going to leave it there this week. The book recommendation is This Orient Isle, Elizabethan England and the Islamic World by Jerry Broughton. I'm going to put a link on the website. You can also get in touch with me through the listener support line, which is 8016-TESCO, or through Twitter at Tesco, or facebook.com slash Englandcast. So you guys, the next episode is episode 100. Can you believe we've been through 100 episodes together? I'm going to do a fun one that looks at the ways Tudor England is still with us today, from words and language to customs and ways we might not have even realized. The Tudors are everywhere. So stay tuned for that. Also remember to check out the Tudor Treat Boxes, treasuresfrombest.com, named after Bess of Hardwick, my history heroine, treasuresfrombest.com. And I will be back with you in two weeks or so. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon. Blown on the wind, a sandal may be sweating. Blown on the wind, blow, blow, blow. I caught a board in Bowerbreak, that solely Samley's on seek. Men's cool maiden of meek, fair and freight of fond. In all this world, me shall won a board of blood and of bond. Never yet in Ustern, Lord Samaritan, Lord, Lord.